0: Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with y'all this morning. So when I went before the credentialing board called the MFC to become fellowshiped as a Unitarian Universalist minister, I preached about the worth and dignity of those who had committed crimes, spoke about my work in a men's prison, you see, I'm an adamant believer that unless we recognize the worth and dignity of those who have taken lives, those who have hated, stolen, lied, those who have done all the things that we affirm and covenant not to do, then we do not really believe in the inherent worth and dignity, right? Instead, we're talking about earned or assumed worth and dignity something a person gets by being good or that we all will just agree that a person has unless they break the social covenant the social contract so that's something that can be lost either way i don't buy it i am adamant that there's no us on one side who offer love and compassion and therefore have worth and dignity and them on the other side, who do bad things and don't have it. There's only we. We who have inherent worth and dignity, not because of or even in spite of the things that we do. We have inherent worth and dignity simply by virtue of being. This I see as a clarion call in our first principle. And it was a large part of what drew me to this faith in the first place. So when I went before the MFC, they called me a first principle warrior, and that is a title I will gladly claim. Our UU principles are a collection of statements that help us gather together in community. We come with many different beliefs, many different spiritual paths and thoughts about the world and life and the universe. And we're able to come together under this large umbrella of the principles. Part of the work of being a Unitarian Universalist congregation is affirming and promoting these principles. And like this congregation, many UU congregations recite them every week. When we sign the membership book, as you use, we covenant to support, work for, and live by these UU principles. Unlike the guiding statements of many faiths, most faiths, we do not hold these principles to be divinely ordained, like handed down from on high. Although I do have to tell you, just as a side note, that divinely ordained doesn't always mean everybody being pious and holy. Um, I could tell you some, you know, poke this guy in the eye and kick that other guy out the door kind of stories about the creation of the Christian creeds, but that's for another time. (laughs) So we see the UU principles as more works of art, right? Things of beauty meant to provoke greater reflection, subject to amendment, reinterpretation, addition as needed, Right now, many UU congregations are in the process of adopting, or they're already adopting an eighth principle, journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. Some have already adopted this, Some are thinking about it, and the Unitarian Universalist Association as a whole is studying whether to formally adopt this principle. All this means that the principles are living guidelines, not dead and dried statements. When they're doing their work right, which means when we are doing our work right, they give us a sense of grounding They help connect us, not simply to morality, but to meaning and purpose. They give us a way of recognizing and uniting with each other, not because we agree exactly about what each principle means, but because we agree that they have meaning. Okay, so you may look at the seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of existence, of which we are a part. And you may see it as enunciating a radical need for esteem for all creatures with whom we share this earth in the same way that we esteem humans. You may see an appeal for a vegan lifestyle and environmental action. I may hear the principle differently. I may hear it as enunciating a mystical connection between each and every thing and being, and each and every other thing and being within this vast universe. Our understandings or ways of holding the principles may differ, but each speaks to how we understand the universe and our place within it. The principles give us this shared, vibrant, open language that helps us create community without restricting meaning or demanding conformity. Because these are not statements of faith, right, we you use, do not believe that there's any sort of theological problem, any divine constraint on a person disagreeing with a principle, or in another person's way of holding a principle. We acknowledge each person to seek wisdom and knowledge according to their own path. And in fact, our fourth principle is upholding a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And it is in accordance with this responsible search for truth and meaning that I have a problem with the fifth principle. The right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. So let's break this down. The right of conscience. This means that we affirm the right of individuals to turn to their own moral centers to make determinations about their lives and about how they think society should be ordered. Now this isn't a free for all, y'all. Some people just don't seem to check their moral centers all that often, in case you haven't noticed. And we're not affirming the right of people to just do whatever they want whenever they want, right? But in affirming the right of conscience, we do hold that within the context of the other principles, as long as those are being respected, right, as long as the worth and dignity of each person is recognized, as long as the interdependent web is respected, etc., a person has a right to stand on their own convictions. So if Mr. Yamaguchi protests by turning his back when the national anthem is played, if Ms. Smith declares her libertarian views, if Ms. Okoye attends a march for life to protest abortion, if Mr. Jones attends a march for our lives to protest against gun violence, right? All of these people are using their right of conscience. It's not about agreeing with how everybody uses their right of conscience and in fact it's precisely about not agreeing with how everybody uses their right of conscience, right? It's about affirming people's right to hold and act on beliefs with which others are going to disagree. And others, that means you and me at times, right? And all of this I most certainly support. So we must be with that other part, right? The use of the democratic process within our congregations and society at large. That's what must cause me concern. So who's up for reinstating the monarchy? Okay, just kidding. I'm all for democracy. I think it's the best form of government that we currently have available to us. My concern isn't with democracy, the use of the democratic process. It's with raising it to the level of a principle. Let me explain why. A very influential 20th century Protestant Christian theologian by the name of Karl Barth wrote about the intersection of the divine and human at the point of human governance. Barth was Swiss, but he taught mainly in German universities beginning in 1921. He witnessed the rise of Nazis, and was eventually expelled from Germany in 1935 due to his resistance to their policies, especially as they affected the German Christian church. Barth strongly believed that theology was and should be political, that faith called people to be involved in making things better for everyone, and especially in righting wrongs and lifting oppressions, right? Early in his career, he was known as the Red Pastor, and he proclaimed to a workers' union meeting that Jesus was more socialist than the socialists. Not everybody liked that. Now, Bart wasn't the first or last to call Jesus a socialist, and this isn't what he's most remembered for. What made him so influential was his call to remember the transcendence of God. What he called the infinite qualitative difference between humans and God. Now as a mystic who sees God in and through all things and all beings, I've already got issues. But let's keep following Bart here, okay? This infinite qualitative distance, difference, has implications in all areas of human life. But what matters for us in this discussion is what it means in the areas of politics and governance. That while God gives a yes to the strivings of the human spirit ever onward, ever toward the more just, the more like the divine, God always and also gives a no to the results of human action, which are never the same thing as the divine, okay? What that means is that we're always called to work for more justice, more peace, more equality, but we always have to remember that God is never on our side on any one side against the other side. The divine, the holy, is never the province of one set of humans over and against another set of humans. God is never aligned with any human institution, right? So if God isn't on my side, does that mean there isn't any right or wrong? Of course not we're always figuring out what we think is right and wrong and determining how to make that choice. In fact, that takes us right back to the right of conscience at the beginning, you know, where we were talking about um, the, the fourth principle, right? But when we start believing that one group or one party or one nation is more favored by God than others, we end up in really dangerous waters. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, okay, I don't really believe that God favors anybody. Or maybe I don't believe in God at all. So this stuff, it really doesn't affect me, right? So what if I take the God language and the divine language out of all of this and I replace it with right in the sense of goodness and justice language? If I say my side is right and just and the other side is all about injustice. Right? So I've got a secular equivalent of God's on my side. Right? And we don't have to have those words about God in there to have that same kind of thinking going on. And I think Bart's, Bart's critique still holds. The striving of the human spirit toward goodness and justice is amazing and a thing of wonder. But the results of our actions in terms of policy, and party, and politics, must always, always, always be recognized as incomplete at best. We strive toward the good, but we are never going to completely achieve the good. Partly that's because it's a moving target. Each generation opens its eyes in a new way to possibilities of liberation and openness that those who came before it could not even have dreamed of, right? And we also know that even the best institutions become corrupted and have to be brought down or reformed in order to keep bringing forth that justice and joy, that were their inspiration in the first place. This is true of religions, political parties, nations, and every other thing that humans build. So while there will be victories and celebrations along the way, we will always be in movement toward justice and peace and equity and liberation but never fully arriving. So I've said a lot here, but I still haven't exactly explained why I have a problem with the fifth principle's call for the democratic process in our congregations and society at large. Here it is. As I see it, the democratic process is effectively a human institution and therefore inherently limited in the ways that I've discussed. Not because democracy is bad, but to go back to BART because human institutions are always under that no of God as incomplete. Again, a democracy can even move a group toward greater injustice if people decide to vote that way, right? The democratic process can move us toward goals of peace and liberation or holiness, but they are not peace and holiness and liberation in themselves. Our principles are ideals towards which we should strive, but as I see it, political systems, including democracy, and whether they're used to run churches or nations, are tools not ideals, in lifting up this tool of democracy in the manner of an ideal like justice or holiness or liberation, like community, like interdependent web of existence, we make a claim for its goodness and rightness above all other political systems that are or that could be. We can look to the current situation in India to see we're having claims of goodness and rightness all on one side of a political party lead. A political and religious ideology called Hindutva is part of the stated policy objective of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's BJP party. Hindutva seeks to transform India, which is constitutionally a secular and multi-religious state, into a specifically Hindu nation where other faiths and ethnicities are eradicated from public life. Take a look behind the scenes, and what that means, among other things, is God is on our side. God works through our political party. Here in the United States, we see a rising tide of Christian nationalism, with a growing subset of right-wing Christians carrying the belief that God favors America, and will do so even more as it reclaims its rightful heritage as a nation where Christians rule. God is on our side. God works through our political party and political leaders. God is against those who are against us, yeah. This doesn't just happen on the right or among those claiming a belief in God, we can see those on the left and those speaking in justice statements rather than God statements, making these kinds of claims as well. So these are the concerns that I have about lifting up the tool rather than simply holding to the ideals. But when it all comes down to it, the concerns that I have in our, in our fifth principle in holding it up as an ideal are that we are looking at a finger pointing at the moon rather than looking at the moon itself, right? But honestly, while I've shared my concerns, I'm not really trying to convince you to share them with me. What I'm trying to do is to convince you of the importance of really thinking through the things that we say we affirm, of taking our principles seriously, and not just having them be nice words on a page. These are the ideals around which our communi- community of faith gathers. If we don't take them seriously, who is going to? Right. So maybe the fifth principle is your favorite principle, right? Maybe you come from a religious background where clergy held a lot of authority and people in pews effectively held none. And the first time you read or heard the fifth principle, it gave you a sense of welcome and worth like you had never experienced in a religious institution before or maybe you've had some other experience or thought process altogether about the fifth principle. If so, I'd love to hear it. Thank you.